Hello everyone, it's Friday the 19th of November and welcome to episode 82 of the Kite Podcast with me, Will Evans. And me, Ben Eagle. At the end of last week, COP26 came to an end. The 118 private jets that flew into Glasgow returned the various world leaders to wherever it was they originally came from. And us mere mortals were left to figure out what the consequences of it all might be. And this is what today's episode is all about. And thankfully, we are joined by two people who will be able to enlighten us as to the conference's potential impact on farming. The NFU's climate change advisor, Dr. Karis Jones, is with us, and as is Kite's head of sustainability, Rachel Maidley-Davis. She's also on the show. And as always, we're joined by everybody's favourite dairy market analyst, Chris Walkland. Chris, let's go over to you for the Milk Market Report. Where are you this week? Well, I'm bringing you my report from the Kite Podcast Briefing Room this morning, which I'll have you know is not as flash as number 10's £2.6 million briefing room. Instead of smart union jacks and oak podiums, ours costs £2.60 and consists of somebody holding up a bedsheet in the background. (laughs) No expense spared on this show. And I'm here because I've got an announcement to make, a groundbreaking announcement on behalf of this show inspired by the COP26 conference. And here it is. Over the last 82 podcasts, I know my listener has had cause to groan repeatedly over my awful attempts at humour on this show. This is clearly not sustainable as it generates far too much hot air and pointless emissions. I also understand my listener (laughs) has a tendency to get hot under the collar about all of this to the tune of one degree Celsius above (laughs) pre-industrial levels. This must be limited to 1.5 degrees. In pursuit of that, therefore, and as part of this podcast journey towards net zero awful humour by 2030, (laughs) I have agreed with the Interkite Committee on Podcast Change to phase down, but not phase out, my jokes. (laughs) Unfortunately, we couldn't get an agreement over the line for a complete elimination of every gag by 2030, but the committee have convinced me that having one joke on the show each week is more than enough, and they don't need any more. The end. So isn't that great? And just like the COP26 chairman... I know my listener will by now have his head in his hands and tears in his eyes. <laughs> so there. Anyway, to the markets. The GDT was up again this week by 1.9%, a rather pathetic 1.9%, in fact, although it took its the uh, although it took the commodity price to the highest price since March 2014 the futures were pointing to higher levels. Nevertheless, the auction is tracking around the 35 pence level when we convert that back to UK farm gate prices. Uh, And I might be optimistic about farm gate prices being at that level in the new year, but credit and dairy is now up to 33.5 pence for January. And Arla should be well over 33p for December. The heat still seems to be coming out of the EU butter and cream market, possibly due to some more lockdowns in Europe and more milk being around. 
uh, from a seasonal point of view. So butter has dipped slightly for the second consecutive week uh, and cream has dipped below uh, €7,000 a tonne. That's £2.35 a kilo here. And that's had a negative impact on our cream price, which is now 215 to 220 in the main. SP continues to climb uh, to 2650 sterling, say some traders. And certainly Arliss Skim Powder had a very good GDT auction and beat New Zealand's price by 29 points to 20. No, no, that was the rugby score, the Irish rugby score against the All Blacks. Well done, Ireland. Wales couldn't do that, could they, Will? <laughs> I was just thinking, I hope you don't mention the Wales score against New Zealand. <laughs> Gloss over that. <laughs> uh, anyway, if we take butter and skim milk prices and take two pence off for transport, another two pence off for a processor margin, and another two pence off to, con- to cover additional supply chain costs, they still convert to a price five pence more than what most farmers are getting at the moment. On the futures, well, the butter's dipping in line with the real market, but is still strong above 5,000 euros into the flush, and skim price is similarly strong uh, off the boil a bit, but above 3,000 euros through to August next year, so very, very strong there. But cheese is the star of the show, I'd say, at the moment. Mild cheddar is at £3,500 a tonne, which equates in a rule of thumb way to a milk price of 35p. So I'm not bonkers in thinking farm gate prices should get there at some stage for some. And mozzarella has moved up again. Uh, Spot milk is where it was at 43 to 46 So that's it from me. I'm now off to write some more witticisms to entertain my listener. Or maybe it's just to entertain myself. Well, you farmers have lovely cows and fields to look at every day. All I do is stare at a computer and a photo of John. Imagine (laughs) that. (laughs) Bye. Start to feel a bit sorry for you at the end there until you mentioned the picture of John and then a bit weird yeah um actually envision that (laughs) (laughs) thank you chris um rachel let's turn to you first of all um we've heard lots uh in the press about cop and there will be no doubt uh plenty of opinions when it comes to how the conference was covered by the media but from your point of view what were the main outcomes and agreements made I mean, I'm still wondering how I follow on from that comment with Chris about this photo of John, if I'm honest. It's, uh, it's hard to sort of focus on serious stuff, isn't it? Um, I think that's sort of like, um, you know, a, a lay person um, or a farmer, it, it, it's, it goes back to we made a few weeks ago, isn't it, about being slightly probably overwhelmed, probably just as much now it's finished as when it was on, um, because it's a it's a really complex process, and this is the trouble. It's almost been mainstreamed. That's what they did with COP twenty six. You know, when you've got big retailers sponsoring it, they really mainstream it. But actually, what happens really quite complex. And I know this is this is bread and butter daily stuff for Keris, but I think 
you know, from, you know, with my farm hat on, the whole thing is is still overwhelming. Um, I mean, I'll pull out some of the big things. It's obviously actually quite a lot was um, obviously discussed and drafted and agreed on over the sort of two week period. But if we pull out the main things or three main things I see, first of all, we've got this Glasgow Climate Pact. Um, And also you need to remember the backdrop really for sort of Alak Sharma in particular was about sort of keeping alive the limiting temperature rise to 1.5 degrees centigrade. And that was a sort of, that was the sort of the, almost the tagline, so to speak. And um, I mean, th- there's lots of criticism, d- don't get me wrong, out there in terms of this Glasgow Climate Pact. But, the, but in terms of having this pact, that was quite a new move, quite groundbreaking, quite novel almost, the fact that we have one. Um, so the big things that came out of that were that countries... Um, need to sort of renew their sort of ambitions in terms of their climate pledges um, by the end of next year. So it, it does build upon what was agreed in the Paris Agreement, where I think they had to um, put forward their sort of obligations every five years, and they're trying to encourage them. So next year, so that's the first big thing from that sort of pact. Um, but also um, we've had sort of an increased sort of financial help towards developing countries and how they sort of mitigate um the impacts of climate change and sort of climate finance. And then thirdly, the big thing from that, and you just seen the pictures probably of Alex Sharma sort of tearful on Saturday evening, was this, well, it was in relation to the commitment to limiting coal use. And the reason why he was sort of upset about it, and again, it, sometimes perhaps with the media do focus on sort of one thing, don't they? Is that obviously India in the 11th hour sort of wanted to change the language of the drafting in terms of where we were looking to um, phase out um, the use of coal is that India wanted to have the phrasing phase down. Um, so I think there's been a lot of criticism that perhaps um, that the language within that sort of pack just wasn't robust enough. And I think, but I mean, I'm all about actions perhaps rather than, than sort of language. And I suppose it's whether this is really setting off almost the starting gun um, in terms of our actions going forwards. But um so it was pretty groundbreaking. We had it, but obviously you, you could you could tear apart some other bits um, very quickly. Two other bits would be Article Six. I know we've mentioned it before. Um, so Article Six, the Paris Agreement, and actually it was still on the table to be agreed. Um, and some of the big things that have come out is there is a draft text in terms of outline of the future structure of carbon markets globally, and also some drafting in terms of accounting guidance for emissions trading between countries. So it's established a sort of a new um, credit mechanism. Um, so again, it, it's it's all about devil in detail and how these things come out afterwards. You know, COP26 is a moment in time. It's all about going forward now. Last but by no means least, another big thing, and probably this is a real thing with my farmer hat on, would be the methane pledge. So it came out really early on and it was a big deal. You know, we had Biden there sort of, big showman it was led by the us and the eu and obviously they've reduced to reduce um, they've pledged to reduce methane by 30 percent by 2030 um and, you know it's and it's been signed by over 100 countries you know it's a big pledge um but again it will be all about the action you know how is this going to be acted out will it impact us as farmers um so they for me there's loads going on but they'd be the, the big three things i think i'd be Taking home. Mm. Great summary, Rach. Um, let's dig down into some of the detail now. 
And uh, this is where we turn to Keris. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's, it's really, really, really good to have you here, especially for this subject, of course. Um, let's talk about methane, first of all. So when it comes to methane, uh, there was, as Rach was saying there, there was a significant pledge uh, which would involve cutting emissions by 30% by 2030, if this is acted on, compared with 2020 levels. And the ruminant sector could well fall within that as part of the plan. Uh, so what was the area of focus when it comes to methane at COP and, and how might the livestock sector be impacted, do you think? Uh, hi, Ben, and thanks to Kite for the invitation to speak on my very first podcast, although I'm still yeah. fighting back the tears after Chris reminded me about Wales being beaten by New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll soldier on. Uh, uh, Rachel gave a really good introduction uh, about the scale of this pledge and uh, a reminder to everyone listening that it's a global pledge. This isn't something that each country has to do, but in everything that I saw, both at the launch and also there was an exhibition space dedicated to methane, the focus really is on the oil and gas sector particularly uh, methane escaping from those sectors. And it's not just about reducing methane. That's accompanied by the need to better measure uh, the progress that we're making. And the EU is helping to set up something called an International Methane Emissions Observatory for satellite monitoring of the point sources. So these are hotspots of emissions, for example, from the oil and gas sector. But other hotspots of emissions might result from agricultural emissions. Uh, if you think of perhaps some of the feedlot uh, uh, livestock systems that we've seen, that I've seen in the States from pictures, they might also be hotspots. So those are the sorts of things that the observatory will pick up. And the impacts on agriculture, uh, well, I was pretty heartened, actually, uh, listening to um, the U representative of the US government at the launch. He, this person talked really positively about providing incentives to reward farmers for reducing emissions. And the EU Parliament, um, a couple of days ago, when it, uh, signed um, the methane, its own methane strategy. It acknowledged the difficulties of uh, measurement reporting um, of methane in agriculture, and they talked about explicit support for technologically feasible practices to reduce methane emissions and report on them. And that's a sort of positive attitude that we'd really like to see this the UK government adopt. So we're really looking to work with them to help farmers achieve this goal in the UK. Okay, so so there's there's some optimism there, Rachel. Then I think there is, but I think it's still, I think it's a good point, really, Keris, in, in always remembering that it's, it's this is a global issue. And I think first of all, in, in ag, it's very easy to sort of to narrow down, but also in the UK, it's easy to narrow down. And I think there's obviously a lot of um, media coverage and chat shall we say in terms of methane but obviously it's that definition between biogenic methane and and I think that's that's the key isn't it it's understanding the differences and perhaps sometimes maybe we have a role to play in terms of 
getting those messages out because probably it's whether we it's what we believe as farmers that people are focusing on the methane from ruminants or whether that really is the issue or not um but i I think it's just always you're always conscious about in terms of economies as well and where the, the sort of the sacrificial lamb so to speak um comes from i don't know what your thoughts are on that is it just perception as a farmer or or is it a reality i don't know can i ask a question there because it was it was one of the it was quite an early pledge wasn't it in cop it was one of the or it was you know and it obviously hit the headlines um and as a farmer your ears prick but is that because they see methane as the the primary target or do you do you think that was just one that was easy to tick off the list as it were um, so the the timeline gives you that indication. This is a 2030 target. So they're looking for so, something that's quite short, easy, quick win, and also thinking about methane's short-lived nature. So both those things come together um, that by reducing methane quickly, uh, particularly the 30, that 30% figure takes you into that um, space of global cooling for anyone who's been following um, the work done by Michelle Kane, Miles Allen, John Lynch at Oxford University will understand the subtle differences between uh, accounting for methane if your methane emissions are uh, rising, static or, gen- or gently decreasing, or if you can really ramp up those emissions reductions to the 25 30%. Um, I'd like to talk about carbon trading um, because there's been such a lot of noise about this in the farming press in particularly and a lot of people sort of think it'd be a huge opportunity and others are are very sceptical but um, what was discussed on that front Keris and are there are there opportunities there for agriculture do you think? Can you give me an easy question please? (laughs) It's a Friday. (laughs) Um, Okay well uh, from what Rachel said earlier about Article 6, clearly you've talked about markets before. And if you haven't, I'm sure it's worthy of a podcast in its own right. Uh, and as Rachel said, there were some really positive moves in Glasgow by getting Article 6 signed off. And particularly this uh, beautifully named Article 6.4 Um, which will lead to the creation of a new international carbon market for the the trade of emissions cuts, either created by public or private sector anywhere in the world. So that, I think, is a super um, step forward because in in the absence of that agreement, what we've had, I think, is a bit of a wild west of the voluntary carbon market. Yeah. what was interesting to see in Glasgow was um, some NGO backlash against carbon markets and what are commonly called nature-based solutions. And that feels to me like quite a fine balance to uh, achieve between criticising the potential of markets to deliver offsets but also encouraging people to invest in nature. And I think their concerns about markets and nature-based solutions are around using offsets as a get-out mm-hmm. for some industries 
instead of actually reducing emissions. Yeah. Secondly, whether those offsets are really worth the paper there or the recycled paper that they're um, printed <laughs> on. Yeah. And second, and finally, and I, you know, this is an issue here in the UK, particularly around tree planting. The impact of la- large of land use change, particularly large land use change, on farmers themselves. So you're right. Well, there's a lot of interest uh, here in the UK, but it feels like we've still got quite a long way to go. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. Farmers should think quite carefully. Mm. You need to sign a contract, and a contract in this space is like a contract anywhere. So uh, think carefully, take advice. Yeah. Um, I mean, Rach, what do you think? Do you, do you think there's an opportunity there for, for farmers in terms of carbon trading? I mean, are you thinking about those uh, those ancient oaks you've got on the farm or, 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 you know, as a diversified income in that regard? Or, or does it just depend on the very nature of your business? Yeah, I think my advice on this ha- hasn't changed at all, really. It's always been proceed with caution. Yeah. Um, and I think it relates quite nicely to the conversations we had back in was it episode 80, um, when we were talking about the C, um, SETQ projects and actually how we probably need a bit greater of understanding, I think, at farm level about carbon sequestration and, and carbon stores first. I think there's still quite a lot of lack of understanding at farm level. Farmers assuming that because they have... Um, sort of well-managed grassland or trees already that they already are they, they have they can generate credits in the the come they're already sequestering rather than that additionality um so i still think we need a big education piece on this but i think in terms it's a step forward with article six but i think as Kara said it's by no means a, a done deal it's still not clarification so it's only it's sort of watch this space i think and proceed with caution would be my two sort of nuggets of yeah. um, information to farmers yeah okay um any, just, sorry well can i just on. ask a question to case was, was there any um agreement you know there's lots of people who've said yeah we'll 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 shake hands and we think we should formalize the carbon market and carbon trading opportunities but was there you know there's like a massive administration issue there isn't there aside from the calculation issue in the first place there's an administration and marketing issue i suppose Keris. was there any indication of how that might look um art, the two things have well, broadly two things have been holding the negotiations up for years on end one is around article six and uh, rules for market and the other one was around reporting and, and verification and they agreed both so <clears throat> there were the need for transparency in how you report all these things is as important as having the rules in the first place. So both things were agreed. So you don't get allowed double counting. Um, so uh, that was also a really positive step forward, Becky. Mm. Thanks. So bringing this just back to very broad terms, what does all this mean for British agriculture and and, and for dairy specifically, Karis? Um This is the in thirty years of United Nations climate negotiations. This is the first time that uh, fossil fuels and coals and coal in particular have made the text of an agreement. So it's not perfect by any means. 
that's the strong strongest signal ever that this is you know, definitely the death knell for coal and to getting towards the end for the other fossil fuels um oil and gas for example mm-hmm. and so i think for british agriculture and dairy my personal view is it's much better to be ahead of the game and luckily i'd say we both are the world will be looking for solutions and i think the sector and farmers in particular really good at that they're really good practical people and um some of the things we're going to some of the solutions that we're already exploring in um better genetics integration between beef and dairy sector role of animal health in driving down to uh emissions um alternative to soy dairy sector isn't a big user but it does is in some feed and there was the uk presidency had made a big deal of trying to de- stop deforestation and so you can see both the retail sector um plus government increase increasingly interested in uh pushing those initiatives forwards to find uh, either sources of sustainable soy or alternatives and i think for the dairy sector itself is that um minet had a fabulous opportunity i think in thursday of the first week to take the stage along us uh, agriculture secretary Tom Vilsack to not only talk about the NFU's net zero goal to talk about the um UK dairy roadmap which uh, fantastically a fantastic timing was launched the Monday beforehand um she was on the stage at a global dairy platform event able to show the leadership by the UK industry and um I mean, in terms of discussions that that were taking place at the conference, uh, away from the main stages, away from the big governments, um, the main players, is there anything? Was there anything significant that that you sort of picked up um, that might be of interest to farmers? Um, it, well, I, I'm going to uh, play a bit fast and loose with your uh, definition of main players and global leaders because there were a couple of things that I don't think made the headlines. but i also found hugely positive for our sector so there's definitely renewed interest in the role of innovation in agriculture to help not only deliver emissions reduction but i think really importantly to build resilience in the sector rachel talked earlier about trying to keep 1.5 alive trying to keep temperature rise to 1.5 degrees centigrade i don't need to tell any farmer about the impact of weather on the climate on um, agriculture the risk of more extreme weather is not a good position for agriculture but back to the uh, announcements on innovation in agriculture the US and the EUAE launched their agriculture innovation for climate mission and there they want to significantly increase investment in uh, innovative solutions for agriculture over the next four, year, four to five years i think by 2025 and the uk government and others then something called climate shot so it's really good to have this uh, greater focus on in 
innovation in our sector, delivering practical solutions for farmers and dairy farmers of this podcast. And then two other things. Um, It would be remiss of me not to mention uh, the agriculture negotiations. There has been a two and a half year roadmap discussing some really technical issues on agriculture, like nutrient management, soil management, how to better manage livestock for the range of things we want from the sector, food security. That was supposed to report at COP26. It didn't quite get there, but there were some really positive words in the draft conclusions for those negotiations and some really positive words on livestock. And then finally in this space, and I think this is significant for farmers, there is such huge value in bringing farmers across the world together, speaking with one voice. We all have... Everybody has the same problems. Uh, let's come together to find common solutions. I was hugely privileged to um, facilitate a panel discussion where Minette, as president of the, of, uh, the NFU in England and Wales, was on a platform with uh, Elizabeth Simandala, who's the president of the Eastern African Farmers Federation, who has 20 million farmers her federations are slightly different numbers but to hear those two women talking about very similar problems similar challenges and also searching for similar solutions different scales i think it's just a fabulous thing for our industry yeah i I mean we sort of talked about the global nature of, of it all there what sort of perception do you think people have about agriculture um when looking at it at a global scale i mean we you know i i don't know i get the impression that things are maybe changing a little bit after we've all felt a bit like climate villains for a while or, or we've been portrayed in that way i think maybe things are changing a bit do you would you agree i uh yeah i think you're right i think that um there is some nuance entering the debate and i'm not sure when that started maybe covid has actually helped as people have started thinking about where their food comes from, how it's produced, taking more time perhaps uh, around food. I'm not sure. Um, But I think people who really understand agriculture and farmers really do see its potential, really do see us as part of the solution. Uh, I heard many of the government negotiators involved in the agriculture talks wanting to hear from farmers, uh, really understanding how farmers have to be at the table. I guess the continuous challenge for us all is how how you talk about an industry that is inherently hugely complicated, how how you do that in a way that means something to people um, and how you do that in a way that is simple enough for them to feel like they're doing something positive rather than you know, what's currently offered is the very simple solution of just change what you eat. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what are your thoughts on that, Chris? I would tend to agree. Um, I, I, I sense a lot more positivity out there towards agriculture. And I did a talk the other day and I don't think 
I said I didn't think there was any environmental argument that we couldn't win if the person we were talking to was open-minded to listen. Now, the problem is that people aren't open-minded to listen because we're an easy target. But I would be really optimistic and we can win the environmental arguments and we just have to keep pushing the message that, that farmers are the solution, not the problem. And if there aren't any farmers, well, there's an even bigger problem. Yeah. Keris, let's start to round things up a bit. I mean, how how optimistic are you um, after COP26? Or are you optimistic at all? Um, I'm never optimistic about Wales and the Autumn International. <laughs> Never, why is it that we never really get going until spring? True, it's it. so true. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I celebrated um, the Fijian players' red card more than anything else I have in the autumn internationals. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, there's always a new year. Um, yeah, yeah. So inevitably, I'm a glass, <laughs> I'm a glass half full person. And despite the fact, like as Rachel said, that the final Glasgow, Glasgow Climate Pact wasn't everything many would have hoped for. It is a step forward. You've heard it throughout this podcast, and Chris just said it. This this sector does have lots of solutions, not only to uh, some of the issues that within the industry, but this issues for, uh, has solutions for other sectors of the economy. And I think if you can harness that, uh, I've seen the response from our members since Minette made the announcement about our 2040 target. There is a sea change with farmers wanting to know where they're starting from and wanting to know what they can do. Uh, I think you know farmers are capable of a whole lot, given even half a chance. Yeah. And last, last word from you, Rach. I know you're always optimistic, aren't you? I'm always very optimistic, but it probably links to what Karis has just said, really. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. But it, to me, it's all about data. It, it, we've got to know where, where that starting point is. It's no point. And then it helps us. Um, the figure is less relevant at the moment. But it, what, the, what it does is it starts to pinpoint where at farm you can start to reduce emissions. And obviously, we all know, we've said it again, we'll say it again, um, about carbon efficiency linked to business efficiency performance and profitability so it it is a win-win for farmers here but we've got to start nailing down the data seeing where we're at and then sort of um you know and then demonstrating how we really are part of the solution that's got you so good last laugh (laughs) yeah go on last laugh will go on chris i'm going to cheer you up now if you google wales new zealand 2021 (laughs) Here we go. www.autumninternationals.co.uk has the headline Wales 54, 16 in New Zealand. They've got the score the wrong way around. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. Screenshot it quick. I will do that. (laughs) Some greenwashing going on in Wales. Parallel universe I want to live in. That's brilliant. Tremendous, thanks for that. Uh, More of that kind of thing. Um, That's all we have time for, though. A very big thank you to our guests today, Dr. Keris Jones, Rachel Madeley Davis, and Chris Walkland. Yes, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next Friday, but for now, it's goodbye from all of us here.